Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, thank you, William and Craig. Appreciate that. Good morning, church. How are you? Man, it's good to see you guys. Look, I, I know we do this here every week. I hope you don't miss um, the incredible privilege it is for us to be able to worship together. I don't know what your life is like all throughout the week, uh, but in this moment, we get to gather together. We get to pray. You get to be with brothers and sisters, like-minded believers. Uh, you get to sing and worship. We get to be fed with the word. Uh, we, we get the, just the, these few hours just kind of gather together and be a family of faith all in one place. We, we're still that as we go out through the week. But man, what an incredible privilege just to be able to hear uh, you singing. It's always an encouragement to me. And so, man, I'm just glad to share that with you this morning. If it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here at Double Oak Community Church. Uh, and we're glad that you're worshiping with us. Hey, grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18 is where we're going to be in just a minute. Hopefully you got a copy of God's Word. Uh, if not, maybe a device, or if not, uh, I'm sure the people next to you would not mind uh, for you to look on with them. Uh, but we're in a new sermon series called The Secret of Marriage. And we're learning a little bit more about what marriage is and how it points us towards Jesus Christ. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to be uh, in just a second. While you guys are turning there, let me ask you a question. Uh, when it comes to weddings, are you a dancer or a non-dancer? Dancer, okay, good. Now, actually, I'm going to get a show of hands because I'm happy about this. How many of you are dancers at wedding? Anybody? Yes, yes. Good for you. All right, listen. I'm excited about that. Look, I grew up uh, Baptist, uh, and look, but dancing was not prohibited. It was not, right? Uh, but it was not really encouraged a ton. Uh, we were kind of neutral growing up on the dancing front. Uh, but listen, uh, dancing is a lot of fun, and there's a few places you still end up dancing in life, and one of those is at a wedding. You know, it's not at every single wedding, but at a lot of weddings, there will be dancing involved. Uh, and look, that is appropriate. It is a day of joy, is it not? And so it's a day to celebrate. It's appropriate for everybody to dance. And look, in, in lots of color, cultures all over the world, when people get married, there is dancing involved. Uh, Jesus kicks off his ministry at the wedding at Cana. It's like a seven-day festival, a seven-day party. There was dancing at this wedding that Jesus almost certainly participated in, Right? And look, there's something about dancing at a wedding that should be instructive to us uh, because it's hard to dance when you're sad. Have you ever tried to do that? It's terrible, right? You don't, you can't do it, right? It is hard. You're just not going to dance. If you're sad, you're just not getting on the dance floor. But if you're out there, it's very hard to dance and be unhappy. And so when you see everybody dancing at a wedding, it's joyous. We actually had a dance in here last week. We had our daddy-daughter dance in this room. Man, it was filled. It was awesome. Uh, but look, it, it's a day of joy when you are celebrating a wedding. And look, that ought to be instructive to us. We see this in the scriptures that we see uh, marriage being given to us as a gift right here in Genesis chapter two. If you fast forward to the end in Genesis 19, you see the marriage supper of the, of the lamb, Christ and his church. But even in there, it says, let us rejoice, let us exult, hallelujah, because the marriage supper of the lamb has come. It's a party. There is joy involved in this. And so we're taking time to really look at marriage because this is a gift that God gives to us and it ought to be a joyful gift. It ought to be a gift that is a blessing to us. And we've learned this over the past couple of weeks, the majority of us will end up marrying at some point during our lives. And so we need to understand, okay, what does that look like far beyond that wedding ceremony and the dancing afterwards? How does that joy persist? How do I have the kind of marriage that God would want for me to have? And so we're taking time to break that down. But look, there's something here for everybody. 
even if you are a single, even if you are widowed or divorced or you're not planning to marry at all, what we've learned is that there's a secret to marriage. And the secret is this. Marriage is about the gospel. It's not just about you and your spouse. It's about the gospel. The reason God is giving this to us, he's baking it into humanity, is he's saying, I want marriage to point you towards me. This is a picture of Christ and his church. And so for all of us, as we look at marriage and we look at the foundations of marriage and we look at, at how we're to live in a marriage, this ought to also be helping us see how we live in our relationship with our Savior. And so even if you are not going to be personally married, there's something even grander that we're learning here. But for all of us who are married, who will be married, uh, we've been looking at the foundations of marriage. What does it look like to have the kind of marriage that God intends? And so we find ourselves here at the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, if you weren't here with us last week, we looked at this passage then too. We're in the same context. Uh, Jesus is creating He's made almost everything. He's made Adam, but he has not made Eve yet. He is not done. And so right here towards the tail end of creation, look what happens, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord, had, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And with the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So remember, we are right here at the very beginning of creation. And before he is done, he creates Adam, and he says, listen, this is, you are special, you are in my image. And instead of just creating something from the ground, no, from Adam himself, out of one, he creates two, male and female, and then he brings them back together. And only then does he give his final declaration. If you've read Genesis 1 before, you know that after he creates anything, he has a mantra. He keeps saying, and it was good. He made the, the earth, and it was good. He made the plants, and they are good. He made the animals, and they are good. But as he finally creates Adam and Eve and puts them together in this first wedding ceremony, this first marriage, he makes his final declaration, and it is very good. This is a blessing that I am giving to you. This is in my design that a man and a woman, one man, one woman for one lifetime, this is what my design to bring flourishing on the planet. And so as we look to this passage, we've been looking at foundations that, that really undergird this relationship because it is unique. It is different from every other relationship that you and I will ever have. Uh, last week, we looked at three of those foundations. We found out that the marriage relationship is exclusive. It's total and it's spiritual. First off, it's exclusive, right? There's nobody else there. It is one man and one woman together. That is it. No one else is in that arrangement. Nobody else is in there emotionally or relationally, financially, uh, sexually, whatever. It might be, no, 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 this is one man, one woman. It is an exclusive relationship. 
And look, this mirrors our relationship with the Lord. He says that I will have no, you will have no other gods but me. My heart is reserved for you and you, yours for mine. It is an exclusive relationship we have with the Lord. We have to protect that. Secondly, it's total. When it comes to marriage, you don't bring part of yourself. You bring all of yourself. You cannot just commit. Part of your life is kind of a test case and maybe we'll add a little more over time. It says, no, this is all or nothing, all in. Everything you have, it comes with you. Good, bad, and ugly. You have to give everything and you receive everything from your spouse. It is a total commitment. In the same way that we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God in return gives all of himself for us to save us. But then thirdly, we learned last week that it is spiritual. That marriage is not simply a contract between two people. It's not just a business arrangement. This is not just something we drew up that we're gonna try out for a time. It's not even just a, a partnership. He said, no, this is spiritual. When two people come together in marriage, God is doing something supernatural in binding them together. Far beyond the financial or the physical, there's, there's something spiritual that is taking place. This is why you can't take marriage lightly. It's because something truly supernatural at the soul level is happening. God is binding people together and therefore they should not ever be torn asunder. And again, we get this picture that's pointing us forward to say, hey, this is more than just about two people. God is pointing you forward towards our relationship with him. But this morning, I want to go over three other foundations that we see here in the text, and they are these, that the marriage relationship is permanent, it is intimate, and it is creative. It is permanent, it is intimate, and it is creative. And when you put all these foundations together, you have a relationship that is unique, is different from every other relationship that we find ourselves in. And so look at this first one, that marriage is permanent. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, look at the picture there. God is uniting them together. He is gluing them together. And the picture is, is that they would be completely and totally one. So much so that they would become one flesh. Not just a couple per se, but literally one together. This is why you share a name, by the way. All right, because you are in this together, bound together. And these are not meant to be pulled apart. They are meant to be permanently bound together. And look, there's a word that helps us understand this, a word that's very biblical that you see in other contexts to help us describe the, the, the intensity of this commitment. And that word is covenant. When we are making a commitment to one another, we make vows, and specifically you're making a, a particular type of vow, you are making a covenant with one another. You can see this in Malachi, uh, chapter, this is chapter two, verse 14. Uh, the people there are complaining. They're like, why doesn't God accept our sacrifices anymore? Uh, and the prophet is replying back. He says, but you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept our sacrifices? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, any Jewish reader would understand that word and the magnitude and importance of that word. You see, when God created the nation of Israel, he came to the original person, the, the progenitor of the nation, to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And the covenant is this. If you will follow me, I will make your descendants as, as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. 
And through you, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and I'm gonna bless the entire world, all peoples, through you. It is a promise that God has made that he has never failed to keep. It is a promise, this is, this is binding. This is a vow I am making to you. And it is serious. He is pledging all of himself and he intends for this to be a permanent covenant between them. When it comes to our marriage vows, that's the kind of vow we're making. We're not making a temporary promise or a conditional promise. You make a vow, you make a marriage covenant together. And that's what really gives it its power is that it becomes a permanent bond between you. Look at how Tim Keller describes this uh, in The Meaning of Marriage. We've got a, um, uh, our companion book is outside. We've still got some copies if you want to pick up one of those. But look what he says. He says, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. Did you catch that? Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. It's really not all that impressive to stand at an altar and say, I love you. You've said it like a thousand times at that point, right? We know, okay? You said that. We, we already knew that. What then is different about what you're saying at an altar? You're not saying how you feel now. You're making a promise not just for now, but forever. You're saying, not only do I love you now, but I am promising you that regardless of how I feel, regardless of what happens, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, I will love you. This is a mutually binding promise of future love. Okay, that's a covenant. And it's permanent. One of the the grounding factors of your marriage relationship is that it's supposed to be a permanent bond between you. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Love kind of demands that permanency. Just think about how we talk about our love. Oh, I'll love you forever. I I love you more than anybody. I I love you uh, and I'll do anything for you. There's all these grand pronouncements of just like totality of of future. True love demands this kind of permanence that it's, it's not going away. And there's something very powerful in that because in that permanence, it gives you safety. When you recognize that this is a permanent arrangement, it gives you safety. Because in every marriage, you're going to have struggles. In every marriage, you're going to have problems. No couple goes through life and gets everything exactly right. Nobody. I don't care what the, the, the best couple you think is the, the greatest thing ever. They never make a mistake. They do. We all do. Everybody makes mistakes, but when you make a mistake and you have problems in your marriage, you don't have to fear that it's going to end. Why? Because you've made a permanent binding vow with this person and that gives you safety. To say we have space to work on this. We have space to deal with this. Yes, this is a problem. Yes, this is an issue. Yes, this is serious, but we have a space to work on it. Why? Because you made a binding vow to somebody and that safety is incredibly important. You don't have any of this safety when you're dating. In fact, you have zero safety when you're dating. Dating is just a minefield. Dating is terrible. I did a lot of dating in my life, right? And it is, it is terrible. Because in, whenever you're dating, you don't have that kind of permanency. At any point, you could mess this thing up and blow it up. And it's gone. At any point, you could say something wrong. This is why you're always in interview mode when you're dating. It doesn't matter how long you're dating, you're always in interview mode. Because at any point, you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, deal breaker, and you're out. And that's terrifying, is it not? Look, Alice and I dated about two years before we got married. 
And I remember, uh, we, we hadn't been dating too long, uh, and I had bought a house, uh, and we were, we were painting the room, so she came over one day to help me repaint one of the rooms, and we are sitting there talking. As, as we're painting, you know, you're just talking about different things. And, and I remember we were just talking about random stuff, and at some point, I make some random football comment. I made a, I don't know what I said, but I said something about football, and I, I just, I'm continuing to paint until out of the corner of my eye, I realized that she has stopped painting. She has taken her roller down, she has stopped, she's just staring at me. I, and I finally saw, I'm like, I'm like, What? And she said, are you a football fan? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And then she kept staring at me. And I started getting real nervous. Because what I found out later was that football fan is not in her top 10 traits of what she wanted to marry. (laughs) It's not in the top 20. I think it's in the bottom 10, actually. I was not in her picture book of the guy she wanted to be with forever. And as she's looking, she, I, I realized later, she was making a calculation. Is this guy worth it or not? I don't know. <laughs> Can I deal with that for the rest of my life? Or is that a deal breaker? I'm out of here, right? I had just stepped on a landmine and I didn't know, right? That is dating. It's terrifying, Right? In marriage, there is some safety because look, you, you have dated, you've made this decision and now you make a conscious vow that says, I am not going anywhere. And that creates safety, it creates permanence and you need that in a married relationship. And so look, if that's the case, a couple of things follow. First off, it, it follows this, you should not enter marriage lightly. You should not marry just anybody. You should take time to be very careful about who you marry. You don't just marry the first person you find. You don't just marry uh, somebody you just met. You do not do that. You don't do that in any other area of your life. I mean, think about it. Would you buy a house with somebody you've known for less than a month? The answer is no, all right? Do not do that. You would never purchase a home with somebody you had known less than a month. Why? Because listen, if they go weird, that could ruin you financially, It could destroy you. You said, I don't know, that's a big commitment. Let's wait a little more. I want to get to know you a little better before I'm willing to enter into that type of of an agreement, of a a promise. Okay, the same thing with marriage. You've got to be very careful in who you're going to marry. You've got to evaluate. Why? Because this is a permanent relationship. You can't go in it with, well, they'll get better. Oh, well, I can fix them. Well, surely they'll change. Do not do that. It is not going to go well for you, right? You have to say, no, I am making a permanent commitment to this person. Secondly, it means this, uh, you, you, are, you shouldn't be dating a non-believer. Period. End of story. I used to have to tell all the students this. Now I have to tell adults too. Do not date a non-believer. Why? There is no future here. Why would you purposefully date somebody who doesn't love the Savior that you love? Who's not going to be running in the same direction you're running? Who's constantly going to be running at cross purposes to the life that you know God wants you to run towards? You're going to be binding yourself permanently to somebody who's got different values, who's got a different direction they're running in. This can't help but cause friction and chaos in your marriage. Why would you do that? It's why the Lord says, don't be yoked to unbelievers. It's not because they're more evil than you. It's just like, this is not going to work. You're running in different directions. You need to be partnering with somebody, being bound to somebody who loves the Lord like you do. Why? Because this is permanent. But here's the third thing. It means for all of us who are in dating relationships, it does not matter how bad the argument gets, you never threaten divorce. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. I think I got all the evidence. Ever. You never 
threaten divorce. The D word never shows up in any of your arguments. Do you know why? Because when you casually say, well, then maybe we should just get divorced. You have not just thrown a grenade into the conversation. You've just hurled a nuclear weapon. Because what you're doing is you are jeopardizing the permanence of your relationship. You are jeopardizing the safety of that relationship. You are literally saying, I'm willing to blow everything up. And that is massive. We should never do this. In the same way, I mean, look, that would be just as bad if you just say, you know what? I might just kill you. Now, some of you have said that out loud. Um, And that's not good, all right? Um, And you should not do that. Do you know why? Because there are legal ramifications for threatening murder of somebody. It's a bad thing. If you keep saying out loud, I'm going to kill you, you can go to jail for that. Okay, well, if you wouldn't say that, then why would you say something as reckless as, well, then maybe we should just get a divorce. That is the nuclear option. And you have now put a threatening crack in the foundation of your marriage, even if you don't follow through, because you have threatened that permanency, that safety that goes here. Look, every marriage goes through trials and troubles and problems, every single marriage, but you do not threaten the permanence, the safety, the security of marriage in that way. That is never, ever appropriate. But do you see how this points us towards the gospel? Look what the Lord is showing us in marriage. He says, listen, this is a binding, permanent commitment I'm making to you. When God says he saves you, he's not saying, I'm saving you now as long as you're good. I save you now as long as you keep your nose clean. I'll save you now as a trial period and we'll see what happens later. He says, no, I save you forever. I have died for your sins, past, present, and future. All of them. He already knows. He's died for all of them. He's fully aware of who he is getting involved with. And he says this, I am going to save you completely. This is a permanent arrangement. This is where the Arminians are wrong. They're thinking you can earn your salvation. At some point, you could unearn your salvation. You cannot. If you are truly saved, if you have truly surrendered your life to Christ, and he has saved you fully. You have been sealed with the very Holy Spirit. And he does not come and go and come and go and come and go. We're not saved by works. We're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you know how much safety that brings to you? That in your relationship with the Lord, you don't have to live in constant fear that you've done too much, you've made a mistake, or he's, he's gonna finally kick me to the curb, he's gonna finally get rid of me. No, he says, I have committed to you and I do not break promises. Do you know what the most oft-repeated promise in scripture is? I will be with you always. I am with you. I will be with you. He says it everywhere. The last thing that Jesus says before he sends into heaven is this, I will be with you always to the end of the age. It's a promise and you can bank on it and that gives you safety because we will mess up and we will fail and we won't get everything right in our relationship with the Lord but I don't ever have to worry that he's going to abandon me. I don't need to abuse that grace but I also don't need to fear that it's gonna be yanked from me. Marriage is a reflection of this covenant that we have with the Lord. Every time we take communion, do you remember what we say? Jesus speaks to us and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood that I give to you. He speaks a word of covenant to the people that he saves. It gives us permanence. That's something that we should cherish. And so marriage is a permanent relationship. Secondly, it is also intimate. It's intimate. Look at verse 24 again. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You know, look, there's a lot going on in there. And he's talking about a lot more than just sex in that verse, but he's also not talking about less than sex in that verse. And, and look, that's become kind of like a taboo topic where, you know, you even say the word out loud, everybody goes, ooh, can you say that in church? And the church has had a kind of a bad history with this where we've been so concerned about saying inappropriate things, and that's valid, uh, and, and not saying, you know, lewd things, and that's valid, uh, that we just decided to say, not to say anything and say, just don't talk about it. Let's just, let's just like, don't talk about it, pretend it's not there, just like, let's just not mention that at all. And the problem with that is, is that people got the idea that this is something that you should be ashamed of, or that God's not interested in, or he doesn't want to talk about. But look where we are. We're in Genesis chapter two. It's a gift, and it's good. He says, it's very good. This is a gift I'm giving to you. This is meant to bless you. In fact, sex is like a, it's like a glue that holds you together. That word there for holds fast, it's cleave in the, in the King James Version. It's united in some others. Here we have hold fast, and it literally means to glue something together. And sex is one of those things that does that. It's not simply a, a physical act. It acts as like a, a spiritual superglue, binding you emotionally, spiritually to this other person. It's far more than just a physical act. And so the Lord is giving us this, this very intimate gift, but it is meant to be enjoyed only in the context of marriage between one man and one woman in a lifelong married relationship. It's a great gift but we, it is only to be experienced inside that marriage covenant. It is incredibly deep. It is incredibly powerful. It is incredibly intimate. And because of that, it is something that must be protected. You don't have to be ashamed of it, afraid of it, but we also have to protect the intimacy that this brings, that it binds two people together. You share this only with this very special person that you've made a permanent commitment to. It brings intimacy, an intimacy that you do not share with anybody else. Therefore, it must be protected. Look what he's gonna say in Hebrews. Uh, this is chapter 13, verse four. The writer says this, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, I could spend all day just right here, but look what he says. Let marriage be held in honor by all, not just the married or the formerly married, but everybody. We ought to honor marriage in all ways. And, he says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So he goes even more specific and he says, listen, we ought to protect the intimacy of that union. Why? Because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The word for sexually immoral, that's porneia in the Greek. It's where we get pornography. It means any sexual activity outside of marriage. It is inappropriate. And of course, the adulterous, when you're cheating on your spouse. It's what you're doing is, whenever you are having sexual immorality or adultery, you are breaking that intimacy. Instead of guarding that intimacy and encouraging that intimacy, you're polluting and even destroying that intimacy. And the Lord takes this very seriously. And so he says, I'm going to judge those who ignore this. I don't want you polluting that intimacy. Instead, I want you to be protecting that intimacy. And so what he tells us is, is that sex is only appropriate for a man and a woman in a married context. Now look, uh, everybody has looked askance at the sexual ethic of Jews and Christians. Uh, the Roman culture that surrounded Jesus in his day, 
they had no idea what to do with the Jews and Christians. Because in Rome, you could sleep with anybody. They did not care. And they did. It was literally all bets are off. People were married, but you could cheat on your spouse. And that was fairly common uh, and really almost encouraged. You go sleep with the temple prostitutes. That was also encouraged. I was supposed to help the city. Uh, you've just got people doing anything and everything. And they said, no, well, it's fine. The idea that you would limit sex to simply one man and one woman together in a married context, it just boggled their brains. And you and I live in a culture today that's doing the exact same thing. They cannot understand how, how could you possibly limit sex to such a narrow, confining context. Well, we do because God created it and he said, this is how it is made. This is meant to, to help you flourish, to, to encourage you. And therefore, you do not take it out of its bonds. You don't take it where it should not be. So if that's true, a couple things follow. The first one is this. You do not have sex before marriage. Period. End of story. It is not appropriate for anybody to be having sex before marriage. Now, students, I need all of you listening. Single folks, I need all of you listening. Divorcees, I need you to listen. Because you sometimes think this doesn't apply to you because you've already been married. That is untrue. It absolutely applies to you. For anybody who is not currently married, you do not have sex before marriage. Why? That is completely inappropriate. People were fine, but, but, but I love him. He loves me. Look, we're going to get married, so we're just starting early. It's fine, right? It's going to be fine. I mean, surely it's fine if we could just kind of start a little bit early. As long as we love each other, it's all, all good, right? No. Here's what you need to know. If somebody is not willing to marry you, then they do not love you. Period. And like, but he loves me. He does not. You don't know us. Don't have to. Don't need to know your name. I don't need to know who you are. Here's what I understand. When somebody says, I want to sleep with you, but I don't want to marry you, here's what they're saying. They said, I would like all of you physically, and I'll give to you all of myself physically, but I refuse to give you all of myself financially, vocationally, with my time, with my life, with my person. You don't get any of that, but I will give myself physically, and I'll take everything you got. That's not loving. That's greedy. That's what that is. There is no place where it's appropriate to have sex before marriage, even if you're going to be married, even if you, you, you think you might be married. Okay, that's not appropriate. There's so many reasons for this. I mean, uh, but, but, I mean there's so many reasons for this. Look, it's just sinful. God says, don't do that. But look, people say, gosh, Adam, seriously? I mean, this is old-fashioned. You're really gonna go here? You're sticking with this? Is that what you're doing? Really? Is that where we're at? Yes! Adam, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, look, I, I mean, in this kind of world, you, you should, doesn't it make sense? You should live together before you get married. Adam, that just makes sense, does it not? Look, Adam, you would take a test drive before you bought a car. You would take a walkthrough before you bought a house. Why would we not live together to make sure we're compatible before we actually get married? Doesn't that make sense? And yes, there is a perverse logic that I see what you're saying there. Here's the problem. You're not buying a car or a house. This is a person. And this is a relationship. And in this relationship, God says, no, 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 you, you, you reserve that for marriage. Here's what is interesting. Go Google this. In every single marriage study that they've done over the past 40 years, you know what they found out? That when you live with somebody before you get married, your chances of divorce increase, not decrease. Think about that. People are telling you, no, I need to try this out to make sure that the marriage is going to last. Well, people who actually do this end up divorcing more than people who wait until they get married to actually have sex and to live together. Why? Because that's how God designed it. 
Listen, in marriage, there's going to be a ton of sacrifices. You're going to have to constantly say no to yourself so you can say yes to your spouse, yes to your kids, yes to your family. You're going to have to deny your own desires in order to love and to serve the people in your family. When you're saying, I can't wait, I, we're just going to go ahead and start now. We're just going to early, we'll get to the promises later, but I'm just going to take this now. It's a lack of self-discipline. And look, if you're not willing to deny yourself now, you're probably not going to do that later on when you're married. If you're not willing to have that kind of love and sacrifice now, to say no to yourself now, you're, you're not going to do that later. It's greedy. It's a lack of self-discipline, and it's sinful. And so look, there is no place where that's appropriate. It's going to hurt your relationship, not help your relationship. Here's the second thing that uh, follows, though. Uh, there is to be no sex outside of your marriage. That means that sex is exclu- exclusive for your husband or wife, to the person you're married to, period, end of story. There is no place for adultery. There is no place for there to be anybody else sexually in your life that is reserved for the marriage bed. Why? Because adultery threatens to destroy the intimacy of your relationship. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. They're asking him about divorce, and listen to what he says. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces wife, except for marriage, sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. He says, look, this bond is so strong. It is so powerful. It is so important. Almost nothing can break it, almost. But there are a few things that can, and one of those things is infidelity. One of those things is adultery. When you invite somebody else, you're literally inviting them into your marriage bed. You're dragging your spouse into this with someone else. You're you're polluting, you're destroying the intimacy that you have together inside that marriage covenant. And it is unbelievably destructive. Do you remember what God said earlier? He says, I'm going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, praise be to God, you can survive adultery. Marriages can. We have examples of that in our congregation of couples who have sadly had to experience infidelity by one or the other party and they have managed to survive. God has brought them back together. But please hear me, that never occurs without damage. You can survive a car bomb going off next to you. You really can. I would prefer not to. Because even though I might survive, I will have permanent psychological and probably physical damage for the rest of my life. That's just the case. God can save you, but in many ways, it destroys relationships. Look, when you are committing adultery, that is the kind of sin that is going to have impact for generations. It does not simply hurt your spouse. This is hurting your kids. This is hurting your kids' kids. It's gonna hurt your friends. It's gonna hurt your parents. It's gonna hurt your church. It's gonna hurt your community. It has impact so far beyond what you ever intended or wanted, and it will ripple on for generations, which is why we must constantly be on our guard to protect the intimacy of our marriages. Because sooner or later, almost every single married person is going to be tempted to cheese on their spouse. If you don't think that's possible, you need to wake up because you're in a dangerous spot. I remember the first time one of my friends uh, had an affair. And it was shocking to me. I was in my 20s. And affairs were just... It was not the kind of thing that my friends were going to do. I had a lot of Christian friends. And I'm like, well, my friends aren't going to do that. For, it also seemed like the thing that old people did. Like, 
like older people do that. They have affairs, right? You know, we're like 20-somethings, right? That doesn't happen to us. I mean, that, you're not having affairs, right? Um, TV people do that. And, and no, it's, it's one of my friends. It was shocking. And over the years, I've been consistently shocked. As friends and even people I respect and look up to have torched their marriages, sometimes destroyed their lives, the impacts are continuing to go on years and even decades later from what happened. And if you think you're above it, you are in a dangerous spot. I am not above that. You are not above that. There's not a person here who is above that. And sooner or later, the enemy is going to come calling. And the question is, are you in an attitude of protecting the intimacy of your marriage or do you drift into one of the most destructive things you will ever do? This is why you got to watch. Is like, no, I'm not going to flirt. I'm going to watch my mouth. I'm going to watch what I say to people of the opposite sex. Okay, I'm not going to put myself in compromising situations. I need to watch out for this. Just because everybody else is doing that doesn't mean that I need to be doing that. Wait a minute, this is not helpful. I'm making small steps. I can see where this is heading. I need to protect my friends if, if they're doing that kind of thing. I want to be around people who will also protect my marriage and protect me and, and help me and, and challenge me in these things. Are you doing whatever you can to protect the intimacy of your marriage. It is unlike any other relationship that you have, and therefore it must be protected. Furthermore, let, let, that includes pornography, by the way. People say, I don't, we don't have to bring anybody else into our bed, but you know, we were just bringing pornography uh, into that situation as if that's somehow better. It's not. It's not. And I have watched it destroy the marriages of people in this congregation. Please don't think that just because it's on a screen or a television or whatever, this is somehow different. You are still polluting the intimacy of this bond that you have with the person that you love, that God gave to you. Please don't think it's somehow less damaging. It will corrupt and crack and destroy that foundation if you are not careful. Do not take it lightly. You gotta protect the intimacy of that relationship. Because look, this is, this is not a light thing. Think of the depth of what God is offering here. When he's showing us the gospel in marriage, you see the intimacy that he's looking for with you. It's not a physical union, it's a spiritual union. He's not okay with just a, hey, see you every now and then kind of relationship of, hey, once a week, kind of seeing you, hanging out kind of relationship, kind of seeing you major holidays kind of relationship. He says, no, I know you, I love you. I want you to know me out more than anyone else. This is what God is offering to us. This is the kind of intimacy he offers. I mean, why would we allow that to be polluted by anything else? Marriage is an intimate relationship. Here's the third thing, and finally. Marriage is creative. It's creative. Marriage is a unique in that it creates more human beings. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that the Lord bringing them together. But if you back up to Genesis chapter 1, you find out that there are some things that happen after uh, he brings them together. Look at Genesis 1.28, and look what it says. And God blessed them. He's talking about Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. This is unique. God is actually inviting Adam and Eve to be a part of the creative process because he didn't have to do that. Remember, he had just spoken everything into existence. He spoke and it filled the world with, filled the oceans, filled the forests, filled the land. He could have just spoke and filled it with humans. But instead, he says, no, I'm gonna bring a man and a woman together. I'm gonna keep sex within that marriage context and from sex, you have children. 
which you see now his design. I not only want there to be a man and woman together, I want there to be children, and for those children to have a mom and a dad. This is the, this is the context that brings flourishing. This is the context that brings life. And we looked at those stats a couple weeks ago about how that actually is born out, that kids who were raised in a, a mother, father, single home have so much greater outcomes than kids who don't. This is God's design. And so he says, look, I'm giving you this incredible privilege to join me in filling the earth. Join me in having dominion. Join me in reigning in the same way that he was creative. He is now inviting us to be creative and reigning over the earth. What an amazing privilege. Now look, we don't live in a perfect world anymore. You get to chapter three and sin enters the world and everything goes terrible. And everything isn't perfect and everything isn't how it's supposed to be. And we now live in a world where we have things like infertility, with couples who would desperately want to have children have trouble doing so. Or divorce, where you find yourself in a spot where you say, Adam, I didn't want to get divorced, but here I am. Or orphans, where either because of death or disease or addiction or any number of sinful reasons, kids can't be with their birth parents. You've got all kinds of terrible things that sin has brought upon the earth. And so we have responded to those things. But listen, the Lord is responding. He is bringing life even out of those terrible situations. And he can redeem all of those terrible situations. There's coming a day where he says, I'm going to put all things right. I will banish all sinful things from the world. We will have this joyous celebration. We are bound together completely, permanently in the future. But in the meantime, as I'm healing all of this, he is inviting us to join him in the creative process. And when he gives us the gift of children, we get to join him in that. Now look, it's not required to have children as believers. In the New Testament, we get no prescription to say you must have children, you must have a certain number of children. It says nothing about that. Now you can share the gospel. You can share the gospel with everybody and see the kingdom grow to cover the earth. But for many of us, who are married, the Lord's gonna say, I'm gonna bless you with children and it's an opportunity not to lament the loss of your singleness or to lament the loss of your freedoms when you didn't have kids, but instead to say, I have been given this privilege to grow a family, to be creative. Just like the Lord is loving us, he's giving me an opportunity to join him in this process and I get to live that out and he's given us a safe and secure place to do that. It is inside the marriage covenant. It's an incredible gift where he invites us to join him in what he is doing. What a gift. That's not to be avoided. It's to be celebrated. What would happen if we began to look at these foundations and we all ordered our idea of marriage, our picture of marriage, not to what the culture says or even what we wanted or what the movies said, but instead we look to the Lord and say, God, what do you desire? Because this is the blueprint for flourishing inside your marriage and for growing to be more like him. So do this morning. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. We're going to close in a hymn of worship in just a moment. But Look, I, I have the privilege of knowing a lot of you and have been able to walk with many of you through some of the darkest moments of your lives. And some of you are in those moments right now. But I don't even know the vast majority of what's going on with most of us in this room. But the Lord does. Look, marriage is hard. It's not easy. It's not. It's a blessing. 
It's joyous, but it's not always easy. Why would we want to try to tackle that on our own? Look, you might be here today, and you might be on the, on the edge. Say, Adam, I don't know if I can do this. I would bet that you can't. I know some of your stories, and I don't think I could. But the Lord says, I can help you. You see, it's not just you who made a commitment. The Lord bound you together. The Lord brought you together. And the Lord can heal you if we turn to him. So I wonder if some of us today just need to do that to say, God, I can't fix this. I need you to fix this because I can Or maybe you find yourself in a place where you'd like to be married or you find yourself divorced and you didn't want to be unmarried. You say, I don't even know what my future looks like. I've been there. Put your trust in the Lord. He says, I know. I see. I see your heart. I see your hurt. I have a plan for you. But don't go outside that plan. Don't cut corners. Seek after him. His kingdom is righteousness and all these things will be added unto you is what we read earlier. Let's turn to him that he might bring to us not just the joys of marriage, but even greater, the joys of a relationship with him. And that is available to everyone. And so, Father, thank you for all of us here, married and unmarried. Uh, Father, for just the gift that that marriage is to all of us. Lord, show us how to hold that in honor. Show us how to honor the marriages in our midst. Lord, show us how to help the marriages in our midst. Lord, I pray for anybody who is struggling. But God, more than anything, I pray you would open up our eyes that we might know you. For you are the bridegroom and we are together the bride of Christ. And we look forward to the day when all things are made right in you. We choose to trust you today with our marriages and with our lives. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.